Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy and cool autumn day here in the capital is Adam Sutton. Adam is a director at AD Sutton Motor Engineers, a car repair and maintenance garage and independent VW specialist. Um, Adam, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. It's a pleasure um, having you on the airwaves with us. And normally at this point in the show, we tend to dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering that the COVID-19 pandemic has been the dominant story in the headlines throughout 2020, I feel that it's appropriate we approach the subject matter from that angle. Because it's been such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life, especially within the business world. So for yourselves, in your case, just to what extent has it affected things? I've got to say, regards bottom line, it's not affected as massively, um, but it has affected greatly the way that we do business. There's two kind of levels of impact that we've seen with it realistically. Um, there's the everyday stuff that's affecting us in our trade specifically. Silly things like the price of PPE has trebled. Um, stupid stuff like we can't get plastic seat covers anymore so we have to seek more expensive alternatives and there's then things like trying to keep customers and keep staff safe things like sanitising vehicles um, putting the screens up um, customers forgetting their masks and so you have to sort of say no please can you put your mask on and stuff like that which are all very small things but adding as a total they're all they, they can, they're, they're being quite wearing um, stuff like that but then what we're finding now is we're finding the beginning of what I consider more long-term things. So from our position as a car repair garage, what we're finding is because of lockdown, people haven't done the miles. So therefore, they're probably not wanting the work done on the vehicles. Um, when we are getting the vehicles in for MOT or service, we're finding that the components on them probably aren't worn out because they've not used the vehicles. So therefore, you know, we're not having to change them. Therefore, we don't charge for changing them. And therefore, there's less money going around because of that. The other thing we're finding as well is everything seems to be slowed down. Um, Our parts deliveries are much slower, which means that we can't get the jobs done for customers, which means we have to keep the customers' cars for longer, which means the customers have to keep our loan cars for longer which means we can't lend them out to other customers when they need them. And it's this kind of tumbling dominoes effect that we're kind of seeing throughout the entire, throughout the entire business, really. Yeah, so they're, they're the main things mm. that I can kind of think of off of the top of my head. But in general, the vibe from myself and my staff and also talking to, to other people in similar businesses around the area is that it's, it's very wearing, you know, there's, there's nothing which is massively, fortunately, there's nothing massively which is affecting us as of yet. But mm. everybody just seems very worn out by it all. And how is it managing that effect from a mental health point of view? Because safeguarding the mental health of not just yourself as a business leader, but also the people around you is incredibly important. Um, 
myself and my wife, who's joint director, um, it's we've just got to try and keep everybody's um, keep the vibe up. Really, um, we try to put on as brave a face as possible and kind of keep everybody jovial and um, not wanting to be too crude, but you feel more doubly guilty if you have to bollock somebody. Um, just just literally, we're trying to keep everybody's sort of mental health up just by trying to be as lighthearted as possible. Um, yeah, trying to joke around a little bit. And the other thing that we've found as well, that I've found that this is really important from a management leadership perspective is you've got to show the people that work for you, you've got a bit of a plan and you've got to be seen to be sticking to it. And they tend to then follow you. So, for instance, with the um, with the COVID in particular, <clears throat> um, staff are quite concerned because we have a lot of customers through the door. We have a lot of delivery drivers, and potentially anybody could be spreading it. So, we straight away put out a plan to all staff of this is what you do to sanitise vehicles. We don't want you doing this anymore. We don't want you doing this anymore. But you must do this. You must do that. And that's put up in a few places around the workshop and on the premises so that they can see it almost like propaganda um, that this is what we're doing to keep you guys safe and I think that's just shown that there's a bit of care you know that we, we um, actually do sort of look after our staff and try and care about their well-being as much as possible we've also encouraged them to have holidays too um, I don't know why it should be but car mechanics in particular don't seem to take their holidays in general um, but we've kind of pressured the guys in the workshop and also our lady service advisor we've kind of made them all have time off we're not you know we're not forced them into it but we've kind of said look you know you've got X amount of days holiday why don't you have some holiday you know chill out go out with your partner and you know um, just have a bit of time away and things like things along those lines really I think it's just like a cumulative thing you've got to do to mm. There's, there's no silver bullet for it, sadly, but it's just a cumulative thing. And um, I do specifically, and my wife does as well, we do have sort of one-on-ones. Um, I call them toolbox talks where I just sort of just go and talk to everybody. You know, how are you doing? Have you seen this? Have you seen that? How's, how's the job going that you're working on? And just, I don't know, just we don't let anybody sort of sit there and fester, if that makes any sense. It does, yes, it certainly does make sense. I mean, it's good, of course, that there's regular procedures in place to be checking upon people and making sure that everybody is in a good state of mind. And very positively as well, you do find, um, you mentioned, of course, there that people in the industry aren't just taking holidays at the moment. Um, You see that quite a lot in times of difficulty that people don't tend to take a backseat. They tend to make sure that they bring themselves out, come into their own, stand up and be counted in a time of adversity. And there are so many incidences in business throughout the last few months where we've seen that haven't we? And people have been keeping vital services ticking over by the effort that they put in. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, agreed. And um, thinking about sort of the long-term impact that this is going to have, I mean, you say in your industry, it's kind of almost a little bit of a stasis at the moment. Um, You feel there might be sort of something coming on the horizon. It's been mentally taxing, but it's not had a huge significant impact yet. How long do you think that sort of state is going to last? Because even when we get through the winter and we may have a working vaccine, God willing, fingers crossed by the spring, and the virus itself, however long it takes, is no longer an immediate danger. Just because of the effect that the pandemic is going to have had on consumer confidence and on um, people's sort of mental health and anxiety, it could take a while for things to kind of get going again and revert to what we knew as normal, even when it is safe to do so. Again, I'm going to use the phrase I used a minute ago. There's, there's, 
I don't think there's a magic bullet for this that, that mm. Boris or, or Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer or any of them would have with this. I think, personally, I think the state things are at the moment is what we're going to have now for the next three or four years. I know it's completely different, but it feels very much like the recession that we had a few years ago in as much as you constantly heard about it in the newspapers and constantly heard about how bad everything was going to be. People stopped spending money because they thought, you know, this bad thing is on the horizon. This is going to get worse. This is going to get worse. Um, the newspapers kind of talked everybody into it. And then it happened. And then it just sort of went away. Mm. Um, I've got a feeling that we're probably going to have that, but obviously magnified and multiplied a lot. The intensity of it is obviously going to be completely different. But I think we're going to have this for the next three or four years, probably. So the only thing that business owners really, I think, can do is have some kind of plan in place with regards to keeping customers safe, mm. keeping staff safe, and then also kind of bring that confidence to customers and staff that they're going to keep them safe, whether they have to alter their business models slightly for that to um, ensure that confidence. But yeah, I think that's, that's been the step forward. So unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be any kind of um, cream shoots, if you like, soon after Christmas or any vaccine or anything, even if there is any vaccine or anything along those lines. I think mm. how things are at the moment is how they're going to be. And even when it goes away, I think there's also going to be scars that are left behind mm. of it because obviously businesses will have failed, sadly. It's inevitable. But the way people do stuff is changing as well with regards to how they purchase. I know I'm going off east a little bit, but people don't visit the high street like they did 10 years ago. Um, mm. The fact that people are being forced to stay at home, they're using internet services an awful lot more. Now, I mean, be that Amazon, AO.com or you know eBay, whatever. Um, people are actually, that wouldn't probably have used services like that, are now starting to use them. So therefore, that's then making the other businesses suffer. Um, and where that's filtering into industries like mine is a lot of the bigger companies, you can actually kind of like book your service online and you can do it all from your phone and you don't, the, the garage will then come and pick the car up and you, mm. you can do all of this while self-isolating. So if people get used to that, they're going to expect it when the times get good. So again, I think we've all got to alter our business models a little bit to, um, to move with the times like that. It's interesting um, how businesses are planning for the future at the moment because you can't really plan too far ahead can you as you say that all you can really plan for is to make consumers confident to come in have safety procedures in place but there isn't a long term anymore because guidelines and circumstances can change so quickly um it's no longer months and years ahead it's like days and weeks at best because things can change so quickly so it is a challenge for businesses to try and strike that balance between being proactive as proactive as possible and then being ready to be reactive and being on your toes for when changes do come along as well correct correct um something that we have noticed again is we've always thankfully we've always been relatively successful and we've always had a quite a long lead time in the in the diary customers would always book a week two weeks even a month in advance and there's been times when people have rang up and we've had to say to them sorry we can't do it for three weeks four weeks or whatever because we've we've had that much lead time in front of us we've known that that's we've noticed sorry that that's diminished drastically um probably since coming back after lockdown and since the summer it's diminished drastically so at some points we're kind of like a day, two days in advance. And what we've noticed with customers is 
they've also become a little bit more impatient. And I think that's the general sort of vibe and the mood of the country to a certain extent. Um, so we've sort of found that people are ringing up, and if you can't if you can't do it either that day, the next day, they're kind of saying they're going elsewhere. So we've had to react to that a little bit. And there's been a few times just recently. I thought, God, where's the next job coming from? The guys in the workshop are starting to hit the heels a little bit. There's only so much sweeping up they can do at four o'clock in the afternoon. They want mm. they want cars to hit. And um, I, I don't know why. And then all of a sudden, the floodgates open, and it comes it comes through the door again. I suppose we're just feeling it more because of the times as they are at the moment, whereas, I don't know, two years ago, maybe we would have just thought it's a bit quiet this week. Um, so, yeah, confidence-wise, our plan before COVID was we were going to try and employ another technician and have another bay working in the workshop. And my wife, Emma, and our kind of dream, as I'm sure it is with a lot of small business owners, is that one day we'll be able to work full-time on the business rather than having to work in it quite a lot mm. of the time. And um, the plan was get another technician, get the other bay moving, possibly get another service advisor out the front, um, seeing the customers in, and then Emma and I can kind of work more on advertising and accounts and actually trying to direct the business as opposed to having to sort of drag it along, <laughs> um, as I think a lot of business owners have to do. So that's obviously gone completely on the back burner now where the, um, the expansion plans are. Uh, it's going to happen, but it's probably not going to happen as quickly and quite as smoothly as we wanted it to. So regards confidence, yeah, I'm. we're probably not going to be making any big expenditures um, for a while at least until mm. we kind of get a bit more confidence with stuff. And I think that's pretty much how every business owner is at the moment. We're just, they're all kind of digging their fingernails in a little bit and just getting ready to hang on. No, I certainly understand where you're coming from from that point of view. And it is going to be an interesting period to sort of see what does happen from that sense, because we are in a period of stasis in a lot of um, instances in business. And we have to wait, of course, for the landscape to become clearer. Now, I would, I would like to move away from the uh, the doom and gloom of COVID before we do finish on the uh, the programme. We've talked about it an awful lot already. Um, you mentioned, of course, um, your plans for the business and eventually your vision is to sort of take more of a kind of director's role and work on the business rather than within it. Um, thinking back to when you first started, um, which I think was around about 2007, correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, but, I mean, hold yeah. on. Um, what were the inspirations behind you and um, your wife Emma deciding to sort of go it alone and what was the the sort of moment the penny dropped if you will when you decided that going into business for yourselves being leaders in your own right that was going to be the way um so that, that is a really really tough question to answer because it happened by accident um I'd worked for a lot of garages over the years um, predominantly within VW group and I had a job working on the VW apprentice training program as a technical trainer which meant I spent a lot of time away from home. And it wasn't doing a marriage any good, basically, because me and Emma were never together. And so one day I just quit and didn't really know what to do. Got a job in an Audi garage, and then I realized that I really, really didn't like being told what to do. <laughs> and um, so I quit that again pretty quickly and just saw this little workshop and thought, mm, okay, let's have a go. So we borrowed enough money off of the bank to pay six months of our mortgage at home Thankfully, we never needed it. We were always busy, and it's kind of um, snowballed from there, really. So, uh, where do we want to be and where do we want to go? Um, yeah, well, it's a very difficult question to answer because obviously it's changed so much recently. Um, 
I think we're going to stick to what I said a few moments ago. The plan is that we kind of work on it. We want to work on it all the time rather than in it. And we don't want to be in a position where we can sort of probably not turn up till 10 o'clock one morning and everything still functions fine, <laughs> which we're nearly there, I suppose. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's difficult to plan for the future at this point in time with everything so uncertain and we don't have a crystal ball. Um, But last question that I do want to touch on just before we do wrap things up, Adam, because I am conscious that we are running short of time and this might seem a little bit harsh, but um, if you could go back in time armed with the experience that you have now to 2007 when you started the business, um, is there anything you'd do differently? Mm, Not massively. I think the one thing that I would do differently but it would mean the business was in a completely different shape is we're in quite a rural location uh, which is great because we do have a customer base that we do know extremely well and it allows us to know our customers very well we've won a few awards for customer services etc but I sometimes do wish that we'd set up nearer a city just so we had a bit more um, customer flow through if you like a few more people around and that kind of thing we also find it very difficult to get staff because people don't want to come out to the sticks to work. They kind of want to live in the sticks and work in the city, not the other way around. So I think that's the only thing that I would change. We may have may have altered the location slightly, but otherwise it's it's worked out perfectly for us in every other way. That's certainly good to hear as well, because um, I think part of leading your own business is trial and error, isn't it? It's about trying things, maybe, of course, getting one or two things wrong along the way and then just embracing those as learning curves. Definitely. And I think Definitely. that yeah, your experience um, that you talked about before starting the business as well also shows that you can learn just as much from bad leadership as you can from good leadership because it basically shows you that when you're the one running the show, I'm going to do this differently to what somebody who are you used to uh, work for did. Yeah, possibly. Um, I've, I've analysed that over the years quite a bit and thought, why do I do things and all of that kind of stuff. But um, I came down to the oversimplified thing that I just mentioned a moment ago is just literally I don't like being told what to do. Mm. And um, I went through a phase where all I did literally was just react constantly where we had jobs coming in and I just literally reacted. And probably about... About eight years ago, my brother died suddenly about eight years ago, and I did a lot of thinking around that. And since then, I've tried to actually act more than react to things. And um, I don't know, maybe these days I might be more open to being told what to do if the time, if I was, if the um, clock was turned back. But um, yeah, I definitely try and um, have an idea and actually, you know what, I am the boss. I've thought this through. This is going to work. This is what we're going to do. Head down, foot on the gas, let's go. So I think I've been, become mm. a lot more like that over time, uh, whereas before I was just a, um, you know, as I say, a reactor. I just literally waited for stuff to happen and then did my best with mm. it. So, you know, there's a, there's a fine line between those two things, obviously, because you can't just be completely balls out all the time, um, pushing, 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 pushing. You do have to kind of like react to the situation, as COVID obviously is proving. Yes, Exactly. It's about striking a delicate balance, but sometimes you do need to be decisive and do need to show that leadership. I think you're very, very right in what you're saying there. We are just about out of time on the programme today, Adam, but I've got to say it's been a hugely enlightening experience and a real pleasure welcoming you onto the show with us. And because of the fact that we've referred to it many times today, but we don't have a crystal ball and there are many variables in the way that COVID could still go, I think it would be brilliant from a listener's perspective if we could at some point in this next 12 months welcome you back onto the programme just to see what has changed and where the business is up to by that point. Of course. Yeah, of course. 
I would really welcome that, Adam. It's been a real pleasure, as I say, welcoming you onto the show with us today. And I'm so, so grateful for your time. It's so, so important in the context of what we're trying to do in getting the authentic voices of British business leaders out there. And most importantly, until we do hopefully get to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world too. I certainly will. You too, Scott. And I've got to say thank you very much. I don't think anybody has ever described me as enlightening before. thank you very much there's a first time for everything isn't there Adam thank you ever so much Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. I'd also like to reiterate that last message there to all of our listeners tuning in today as well. Do please stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of other people because it really does make a difference in saving lives at this time. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Adam Sutton, director at AD Sutton Motor Engineers, onto today's programme. Next up on the show, we're going to be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords having been elevated to Parliament's upper house in August 2015, and that followed a distinguished political career which he enjoyed despite being blind from birth. Lord Blunkett held various senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, 
both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms 
about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary 
often chairs COPRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. 
you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be the prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. 
Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission Uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has 
Phillips, does Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.